Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. It's common sense that governments want to use their resources effectively by investing in programs and policies that have their intended effects. But studying programs and policies as implemented in the real world can be really challenging. Each method we could use comes with upsides and downsides. So how can we generate evidence to learn about a program or a policy and whether it's effective within government? And how do you know which method is right? These are the questions that we here at the Lab at DC are constantly thinking about and constantly thinking about how we can fit those in to the normal functions of government and into the need for decisions about programs and policies. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Liz Stewart about study designs that can be used to learn about the effects of programs and policies that provide a balance of rigor and relevance. Liz is a professor of mental health, biostatistics, and health policy and management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her research focuses on propensity score matching, which is a tricky sounding technique that I'm sure Liz will explain in more detail. She also focuses on methods to improve the generalizability of randomized evaluations. Liz, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. So first, I want to start off with a question that actually goes back before the topic, which is, how did you get into this field? What drew you to this area of research? What was the reason for being here? That's a great question. I could go back very far in time (laughs) if you want. In college, I was a math major, but all my friends would sort of make fun of me because I like wanted to save the world through math, and none of us knew what that meant. I was at a small liberal arts college, and there was one statistics class. So I graduated from college with that math major, but I knew that I wanted to go into sort of public policy, social science, but I really didn't know what that might look like. The sort of funny backstory is that one of my friends came home from the career development office one day and was like, Liz, my friends were all like history majors. And she was like, Liz, we found a perfect job for you. It's called mathematics. It was mathematica policy research. (laughs) So close. And it actually ended up being an amazing fit. So I actually have everything to thank my college friend for finding it for me. So after college, I went to Mathematica for two years. Mathematica does large-scale policy evaluations, a lot of randomized trials or other sort of strong evaluations, often through government contracts. And it was there that I really discovered statistics. So I was kind of a data analyst, data manager there, and that's where I learned SAS programming and stuff. But that's really, again, where I discovered, like, oh, wait, like this world of statistics is where I can combine this interest in sort of using math but applying it to a public policy kind of context. So I went to graduate school in statistics, but I very explicitly chose a program and an advisor who worked in that space of sort of public policy. And I knew that I wanted to continue in that, so I used some of my dissertation data, used education data from Mathematica, and so I really was sort of trying to stay in that sort of statistics applied to public policy world. After graduate school, I went back to Mathematica actually for a couple years, and that was great, but I started to miss kind of an academic world and working with students and that kind of thing. So then I kind of stumbled into public health, and I've been in public health since then, but now sort of a little bit more of a public health angle, but still this idea of sort of applying mathematics and sort of statistical ideas to answer important questions in the public policy, public health world. 
So how much closer are you now to answering the question of how does math or statistics or science help save the world? I think I'm closer, um, partly because in undergrad, I was taking classes like linear algebra and calculus. And there were connections, uh, you know, there were like infectious disease models that are differential equations based and things. But now I sort of really see the role of strong design and strong data analysis and sort of how that can be used in these different contexts. And so to continue on that, the core of your research is figuring out what programs and policies work, similar to what the lab at DC does. But we are obviously all using science to answer that question. So to start off, could you explain what are the key elements of a study that you're looking at when you're trying to assess the impact of a program or an intervention or anything like that? Yeah, I tend to very much take a design-based approach to this, sort of thinking about what are the sort of fundamental design elements to use. Usually the kinds of things I'm looking at are this point of sort of estimating the effects of programs or policies. There's lots of other ways data could be used, but I'm sort of usually in this program evaluation sort of context. And I tend to think about, yeah, sort of what are the, not even sort of yet getting into like the details of the data, but thinking about the fundamental design. And what I mean by that are things like what led some people to get the program versus not? And can we use that to then separate out the effects of the program? So one of the methods I work on a lot is this approach called propensity scores. And the idea is that you want to sort of be able to model the decision process through which someone got a program and other people didn't with the idea that there's probably some randomness in that. And if we can do a good job at sort of accounting for observed differences, we can then look at outcomes to compare the outcomes for the program participants. Similarly, you might think about other designs, but thinking through, yeah, was there some way in which the program was administered or delivered that allows us to tease apart effects? Again, whether we induced it or whether it just happened, was there some randomness that we can sort of capitalize on um, to be able to separate out those effects? And can you say a little bit more about why we're kind of searching for this randomness or we're inserting this sort of randomness? What's important about that? Yeah, great question. So fundamentally, to make it concrete, let's think about some program, like maybe a program for kids in a school. The worry is if we just see that, you know, this group of kids got the program and this other group of kids didn't, there might be some fundamental difference between those kids. You know, maybe the really struggling kids got the program, and that's totally reasonable. (laughs) That might be what should be happening. The problem is if we want to compare outcomes for the kids that got the program and didn't, we might see that the kids who got the program actually had worse outcomes But maybe that's partly because they had a such harder time to start with, and the program maybe actually helped them, but not so much that they then sort of got better than the other kids. So what the idea of sort of inducing some randomness is, is that like you want to sort of believe that, well, maybe this group of kids got the program, and maybe some other group of kids didn't, but it was somewhat random as to why they didn't. You know, maybe there's sort of some other feature where one school happened to get the program and another school happened to not, but in a way that's kind of separate from the outcomes. And that way we can compare outcomes for the kids that got the program and didn't, but in a way where we can sort of believe that it's not just these sort of pre-existing differences that lead to the difference in outcomes. And so why is that better than, say, just looking at what happened before something happened and then looking at what happened after. You mentioned why we might have different groups of students Mm -hmm. doing it. I mean, I was a middle school teacher and I did a curriculum with our lowest performing students and not for our highest performing students. If you looked at those outcomes, it would look weird. I think that makes sense. But why can't we just look at, you know, before and after? It's a before and after effect. Yep. 
Lots of reasons, mostly just the fact that a lot of things change over time just because. So kids, you know, they might just learn more. You know, as they get older, they learn more. And so if we look at test scores six months before and six months later, like hopefully their test scores got better, partly just because they were getting older. Sometimes there's ways to account for that to some extent, but we might really be worried that just sort of the time matters in some sense. This can be particularly true in some contexts, something like opioid overdose rates. You know, maybe you implement a program and we might want to compare overdose rates before and after the program. Again, maybe overdose rates go up over that period of time, but it's not because the program was bad, but actually because fentanyl was coming into the community and sort of that was leading to much higher overdose rates. So there might be these sort of temporal trends that are happening kind of in the background and we don't want to attribute our program effects to just sort of those background temporal changes. So you talked about the importance of randomness. When do you think that design where we're inducing the randomness, either as policymakers or as program administrators, doesn't need to be a government program, could be anything. Where is that appropriate? And where is that the best possible design that we can get to? And what are some of the things when you're thinking from a policy perspective is randomization appropriate or the best way to go here? What do you think through when you're approaching them? Yeah, I think there's a couple different factors to think about. One, of course, is ethics and you know, is it appropriate to essentially deny access to some group of people? Because that random is, if you randomize the program itself, you sort of are saying this group gets it and this group doesn't. And if it's an intervention that we're not sure if it works, so in the medical world, they would refer to it as clinical equipoise. If we are really not sure if the program is going to be better than whatever else we're doing, randomization is a perfectly fair thing to do to then help learn about the effects of that. And one step further, we don't know if it might have harmful effects. Exactly. Right? Yep. And so we want to sort of study that uh, in a really rigorous way. Another case where randomization often is quite appropriate is when resources are limited and we maybe can only give the program to part of our population. And so maybe we kind of randomly pick. And that might be a fair way to allocate that. You know, you have a group of people, all of whom are eligible for the program. And picking randomly might be a perfectly fair way to administer the program and then gives us the benefit that we can use it to study the effects of the program. I think cases where randomization is harder, again, are cases where it's just not ethical. You know, we might have an intervention that we sort of know is effective and we don't want to deny access to it to some group of people. Another case, of course, is sometimes it's just you can't randomize a city. <laughs> you know, we're not going to randomize different cities to different policies. So sometimes there's those constraints. One thing I'll mention too is I think sometimes we might not be able to randomize the thing we really want to randomize, but we can randomize what's called encouragement to it. So there are these classic examples of flu shots where we know flu shots are effective, but there might still be questions about exactly how effective they are for you know elderly people or how effective is it to get a flu shot early versus late. So we might not randomize getting the flu shot, but we could randomize encouragement to get a flu shot. You could sort of send out postcards to a randomly selected set of people and maybe in October, like early, and say, hey, you should go get a flu shot. So there are ways that we can induce this randomness. You know, even if we can't randomize the program or policy itself, sometimes we can do something that kind of gets us towards that. Do you have a favorite example of a well-constructed randomized control trial in ideally in a government context, but doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be. Yeah, so I would say some of my favorite examples are from my time at Mathematica. I, in particular, have an interest in ensuring that 
not just that we do randomization, but that randomization is conducted in the target populations of interest. Mm. So there's a few examples of very large-scale randomized experiments where they actually had a population of randomly selected people to participate in the study and then randomly assigned to treatment and control groups. Two of the classic examples of that, one is the Head Start Impact Study, where Head Start programs operate around the country, funded through the federal government. They randomly selected a representative sample of Head Start centers. And then those centers, the ones that were eligible for the study, had oversubscription. So there were more kids in the area who were applying for Head Start than they had funding to give services to. And so they randomly selected the kids to actually get into Head Start. And so what's cool about that from my sort of statistical perspective is that that allows us to estimate the effects of Head Start for the population of kids across the U.S. who are eligible and participating in Head Start. Another example like that is Upward Bound. Upward Bound is a program to encourage college going among first generation or sort of low income high school students. And so similarly, there are upward bound centers that operate around the country, and they can do the same sort of thing where they selected upward bound centers and then randomly assigned people who applied to those centers to get in or not. So you said those were two great examples of what normally doesn't happen. What's more typical of even a well-done randomized control trial, but that makes it more challenging from a generalizability perspective? Great question. So I do a lot of work in education. So a lot of my examples, especially for randomized trials, come from there. And what's typical there is that an evaluator will select, you know, maybe 40 schools. And they might randomize those 40 schools to get some educational technology intervention versus another. Mm -hmm. So it's more of what's called a convenience sample, where you have these 40 schools that are randomized. So you still get the treatment control contrast and the randomization of treatment versus control, but you don't have that sort of sense of having a representative sample. So does that mean that if we were trying to say, what might this look like in another 40 schools or another 20,000 schools, would it work? Is exactly. That, yep. Yeah. So we sort of know we have evidence from these 40 schools and you know that might help guide our thinking about broader relevance or generalizability, but we can't be quite as sure about it when we don't have that sort of formal representative sample. Are there ways for policymakers to kind of think about that or take that into account? Thinking very concretely, we're in budget season here in D.C., and part of what the lab at D.C. does is do evidence reviews of what policies are being considered for funding. And one of the things that we have to be careful about is, like, what's the context of the evidence? And because we would love to live in a world where all of these things had been tested here in D.C., but how should policymakers think about that in terms of generalizability and evidence when we are even lucky enough to have a well-constructed study behind it? Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions because this is one of the things I've really been trying to think about in the past five or 10 years. Because honestly, people really hadn't thought about it much at all, or at least statisticians. Or people would sort of think about it, but in a very qualitative way. Sort of, you know, if I think about a research paper, there might have been a paragraph at the end that would say like, well, we're not sure if the results would generalize. So I think in the past five or 10 years, there's been a growing literature on are there more formal frameworks for thinking about this? And there have been tools starting to be developed to help people think that through. In an education research context, you know, one of the things I'm pushing is even just being better at reporting the characteristics of the participating schools. So if you go back in time, someone might do a, an evaluation in 40 schools. It was not always super obvious what those schools sort of looked like. And so I think even doing a better job in our 
reports and papers of kind of characterizing the sample. That will then help other places say, okay, well, these 40 schools were all rural and, you know, I'm an urban school district. And then sort of think through, okay, given my knowledge of the intervention, do I think it would carry over? There are some statistical methods being developed as well that sort of allow basically weighting a randomized trial sample to look like a target population of interest. Those rely on having good data and a good understanding of what factors might influence the treatment effects, what are called treatment effect moderators. But I think in some contexts we might have that, and that's a way to quantify and in a more quantitative way project impacts from a particular trial to a well-defined population. And so if we're thinking about these sort of things, like we should be thinking about both how are we drawing our sample even within which we might randomize. So kind of double randomizing it almost. Exactly. Yep. Inception for RCTs. (laughs) Yep. Well, so what about these situations where random assignment isn't possible or as we commonly encounter in a lot of spaces and in government in particular that randomization could have happened, but it didn't for whatever reason. But we still want to know in our context, what are DC residents getting out of this? What are some of the other ways that we might think about approaching it about understanding the effects of a program or a policy or an intervention? Yeah, so there's a whole spectrum of sort of potential designs for those sorts of scenarios. One sort of relates to randomization in the sense that in some cases there might be some kind of quote randomization if you think about it. So one really classic example of this relates to charter schools where there's a long literature where, you know, we don't really randomize kids going to a charter school or not, but many charter schools have lotteries that do randomize getting into the charter school. So they don't necessarily go if they get in, but you can use that random lottery to look at the effects of the charter schools themselves. And there's many papers that have done that. I'm a parent of two kids in D.C. public schools, so I know the D.C. school lottery system well. And I think that could provide some opportunities You know, and again, sort of maybe it's even looking at the effects of other things, but you can use the lottery as a kind of pseudo-randomization for the thing you really care about. There's other examples where similarly, maybe there's some other randomness that kind of just happens, maybe because of access. Like some people happen to live close to a grocery store and other people happen to not live close to a grocery store. You need to still be careful about controlling for other things. Like you don't want to compare people in wards that are very different from one another. But sometimes you can use kind of geographic proximity as this sort of quote randomization. It's called an instrument to look at the effects of access to different things. Hmm. So you can sort of think broadly about maybe you didn't actually randomize, but maybe there is this randomness kind of induced just by, you know, I don't know, a bus line. Like a bus line happens to run this way and doesn't happen to run that way. And maybe you can then use that to tease things apart. So what are we trying to do when we're assessing the impact of a program? Yeah, so the impact or what is sometimes called like the causal effect is the difference in outcomes under two different states of the world. So what is my headache pain if I take an aspirin Or what is my headache pain if I don't take an aspirin? But that's me. And I want to know, for me, in two hours under taking aspirin or not taking aspirin. And the problem is that we only see one of those. Right now, I take an aspirin or I don't take an aspirin. And so the challenge for causal inference is sort of figuring out what would have happened under the other state of the world that we didn't see. You know, one popular media example of this that we don't have in real life, unfortunately, comes from It's a Wonderful Life, 
So in It's a Wonderful Life, we're sort of seeing a world with George Bailey in it. George Bailey lived, and we sort of see his life. And then an angel comes down and shows us what would have happened had George Bailey never been born. The angel comes and shows us what's called the counterfactual, this idea of like a different state of the world. So we can think in that movie about kind of the causal effect of George Bailey by comparing these two different paths. What I and others study who do causal inference work is this problem that we don't have angels that come down and show us the other state of the world. So a lot of the work around designs and statistical methods is sort of how do we best predict what would have happened under that other case. One of the methods that you've done a lot of work on is propensity score matching. Can you take us through what actually is a propensity score so that we don't just throw these words out there? What is a propensity score? So the propensity score is formally defined as the probability of receiving treatment given a set of observed covariates. So if we have a data set and we have a group of people who got a program and a group of people who didn't, and we have sort of an indicator of who got the program and who didn't, as well as a set of observed characteristics, test scores, age, school characteristics, whatever that is, the propensity score itself is, again, sort of this thing you estimate as the probability of receiving the treatment. So for those of you who are a little more statistically inclined, often they're estimated where you literally fit like a logistic regression of treatment receipt as a function of these characteristics. The idea, the sort of intuition behind propensity scores is that then each person has this probability of receiving treatment. So let's say that you and I have similar propensity scores. We might be very different in our individual characteristics, but let's assume that they sort of combine in a way such that we both end up with a propensity score of like 0.5. So what happens then is the idea is that we both had a sort of 50-50 chance of being treated. Maybe you did get treated and I didn't, but the idea is that that was random. We both had the same probability of being treated. The fact that you ended up then getting it and I didn't must have been random. And so there's this idea of propensity scores sort of creating a little mini randomized trial. Like if people have similar propensity score values and some got treated and some didn't, again, that must have just been random because we all had the same probability starting out. We could look very different on a number of things, but our propensity to say, go to an education research conference could be very similar. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Can you give us the basics on propensity score matching and a framework of how, as a researcher, you would approach propensity score matching? Yeah, sure. So propensity scores fundamentally are trying to find people who look similar to one another, sort of in this idea of like, we see that some people happened to get a program and others didn't. We might not really know why, but it's just sort of, that's just what happened. And what propensity scores help us do is kind of equate those groups to be as similar as possible on a large set of observed characteristics. So we might have a group of kids that got some new reading program. And we want to sort of find a group of kids who didn't get the reading program, but who look really similar to the ones who did. They have similar test scores and they come from similar home environments and they come from similar schools and that kind of thing. So propensity scores, given the data available, help do that. The key thing to think about when trying to use them is do we observe the variables that matter? Sort of if we're trying to compare kids who got a program versus didn't, In order to interpret a difference in outcomes as a causal effect, we have to believe that we've measured and then equated the groups on the baseline characteristics that might impact outcomes. And so that's the thing to really think about in any given study is kind of what data is available to do this equating. And do we feel like that captures a lot of what's going to explain outcomes? And can you say a little bit more about why that matters or give an example of why this is so important or why 
not paying attention to it might lead to the wrong conclusions. Sure. So maybe let's assume that we don't have, maybe it's kindergartners and you don't really even have a baseline test score. So you just sort of have a group of kids and you maybe see that they're in school and you don't really know that much about them. You know, in a lot of school record systems, you might have their age and their race and maybe whether they qualify for free or reduced meals, although that's even changing Mm -hmm. given community eligibility. But, you know, you sort of maybe just know some basic demographics. If we then compare outcomes for kids who get the program versus not, we might see a difference in outcomes, but it might be that actually that's partly because the kids who get the program are also in houses that have more books at home or whose parents have higher levels of education and are engaging with the kids in different ways. So what we want to be able to do is find kids who, again, come from similar environments but some get the program and some don't. And so that's where thinking through what data is available is really important to understand how well these methods are going to work. Because otherwise, again, a difference in outcomes might not be because of the program. It might be because of these unobserved factors. Hmm. So can you say a little bit more about how the matching actually works? Like what are you doing when you're matching these scores? Yeah. So now if we think about a propensity score, it's a probability. So between zero to one. And so what that says is like there's some people like at the lower end with like a 10% probability of being treated. And there's people at the upper end with like 90%. Those people are probably quite different from one another. But the idea is what we can do is use matching to say, okay, I have a person and they have a 0.1. Let's find someone else with a 0.11 and we will sort of match them. They will become a matched pair. And so, again, the idea is that if we do that across all the people, say, in our program group, we sort of have our program participants, and then we find a group of non-participants with similar propensity scores, and then it's this idea that we can then compare outcomes in those participants and their matches, and then if there's a difference in outcomes, it's due to the program because we've sort of equated them based on these other characteristics that we've observed. You gave a great example of some of your research from Denmark. Would you be able to take us through that and why propensity score matching was a good fit for that? Yeah, this was a great best case scenario. So this was an example where Denmark had instituted suicide prevention centers sort of around the country at different times and different geographic locations and different calendar time. And they were interested in preventing suicide reattempts. And so people who presented at a hospital after a suicide attempt would sometimes get referred to one of these suicide prevention centers and they might go or they might not go, but they were sort of available and they might not go again from randomness in the sense that, you know, maybe there wasn't one in their geographic area or at that point in calendar time. So there was no randomization. We just sort of had a data set that had some people that had gone to these centers and some didn't. But the reason this was a good scenario was that Danish data is amazing. So in Denmark, they have this registry data with extensive healthcare and social register sort of data on every resident of Denmark. So we had data on these people who had presented with a suicide attempt. We knew their medical history. We knew their previous suicide attempt history. We knew whether they were employed, where they were born, whether they had kids. We also kind of amazingly had data on their parents and whether their parents had attempted suicide or whether they had psychiatric disorders. And is that a strong indicator of likelihood of attempting suicide? Yes. And both the person's previous attempts, their own psychiatric disorders, and then a family history are all very important predictors. So these were, again, 
the important confounders is the technical term that sort of these are some of the variables that you might really think then predict whether someone's going to have a subsequent attempt. So what we were able to do in that data set is fit a propensity score model. So we had about, there are 6,000 participants, people who went to these suicide prevention centers, and about 60,000 people who didn't go. So about a 10 to 1 ratio. So we fit a propensity score model. So predicting going to one of these centers as a function of all of these baseline background characteristics. We then got a propensity score for each person, the participants and the non-participants. For each of the participants, we found three people who didn't go to a suicide center but had a similar propensity score as them. So in the end, we had 6,000 people that went to one of these centers, and then we had 18,000 people who didn't but who had similar propensity scores. And what you're able to do and show with propensity score methods is that they had similar propensity scores, but perhaps more importantly, they did look similar on all of these 31 background characteristics, the parental history and their own suicide history and things like that. So then what you can do is compare outcomes among those 6,000 and the 18,000 to see is there a difference in repeat suicide attempts after they either do or don't go to one of these centers. And we did find a reduction in suicide attempts, reattempts, as well as decreases in mortality. So it seemed like these suicide prevention centers were actually effective at reducing mortality due to suicide long term. So a couple of background questions. So when you're trying to analyze the effects of these prevention centers, were all of the suicide prevention centers you were studying already in place when you started looking at the data? Yeah, so we used data from 1992 to 2011. So we were using data from the suicide centers that existed during that window. Mm -hmm. As an aside, this is actually a really interesting case because there are a lot of other designs that could have been used in this case. And honestly, you know, someone else, you know, might want to do that, although it's hard to get access to the Danish data. But this is a case where, again, there's some randomness just due to geography or calendar time. And so, for example, there are these methods called comparative interrupted time series where you could potentially use those sorts of ideas to sort of look at trends over time, taking into account exactly when a center went into place in a mm -hmm. given geographic location. So it's kind of a, an amazing scenario because there's a variety of different designs that all could be used. Hmm. How did you get access to the data? Through a collaborator. There is a woman, Annette Erlingson, who is based in Denmark, and she had an appointment at Hopkins and sort of some collaborations with other people at School of Public Health at Hopkins. And she, as often happens to me, she wanted to use propensity scores. So she said, hey, can you help <laughs> us with this? This was an example where I never touched the data myself because I would have had to go to Denmark to do it, and it would have been a whole big process. <laughs> so I sort of wrote code for her, and then she ran it all in Denmark. So say we could go back in time to before these prevention centers were in place. How would you think about the ethical implications of randomization in that regard? Is this somewhere where even if we could have randomized, we might think maybe not? I think probably. You're right. I mean, this would be a case where it would be pretty hard to think of an ethical randomized design. Although maybe you could argue, and this happens sometimes again, like, maybe the country is trying to roll this out, they can't go everywhere all at the same time. And so you could imagine, for some things, maybe randomizing geographic locations to go into first. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can be creative about that sort of thing, although I think often it's either political or operational, just like who has capacity to do it, sorts yeah. of things that probably matter more. I believe there have been some cases where it's like, well, you know, we want to do this. We can't do it everywhere all at once. 
So maybe we can roll it out in a randomized way. Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking from a policymaker's perspective, and they were presented with a research study or more likely a summary of a research study using propensity score matching, what's one thing they should feel good about? And what's one thing that they should feel skeptical about if they're reviewing that research? Oh, I love this question. Well, I would say they should want evidence that the propensity score matching worked. And what I mean by that is that it was successful at creating these similar groups. So one nice thing about propensity scores is you can, through the theory of propensity scores, they should give you groups that look similar on the observed characteristics. But sometimes because of data, like sometimes you just really can't get maybe the people getting you know, the policy or getting the program and not getting the program are just so different from one another. You know, propensity scores are not magic. So if you don't have enough people that kind of overlap with each other, it may be that they can't find those similar people. So whenever I'm looking at a propensity score study, I want to see like a table that shows, yes, these groups, after we've applied the propensity scores, these groups look similar on these background characteristics. So that's one thing is sort of just that check. And then second would be to think, okay, well, what are those characteristics? And sort of is there some variable that I sort of, as someone who might know the substantive area better, is there some factor that is not in the list that I think really might be a really strong, again, what's called a confounder? So in an educational context or, you know, sort of is there something that really predicts outcomes that is not in this list? And if so, they should be more skeptical of the results. So what's next for you? What are you looking at now? Or what are the sorts of research topics that you're really eager to dive into? So in the short term, statistically, I'm mostly interested in this question of generalizing randomized trial results and sort of developing tools to help people understand how generalizable trial findings are or then estimate population effects from a trial. My five-year goal in that maybe five or 10 year goal in that world is to work on methods that really combine experimental and non-experimental evidence in cases where we might have both kind of develop formal methods to really utilize both sources of evidence in as good a way as possible. Substantively, perhaps not surprising, I'm doing more and more work on the opioid epidemic. So we have a new project working with some partners who are going into a couple particular states and doing some really in-depth interventions to try to decrease opioid overdose rates. And I'm going to be part of an evaluation group to try to figure out what pieces of that can we evaluate, either at the sort of whole state level or the pieces of it within the state. Hmm. Similarly, I have a couple other new and sort of ongoing projects looking at state policies related to the opioid epidemic and sort of what are the effects of different policies. It's a rapidly changing and a really complex policy environment at the state level. And then we're sort of trying to tease apart those different effects. Yeah, obviously something very much in the news here right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing that I'm involved with a lot is what's called the Bloomberg American Health Initiative. And it's this large donation to the school of public health to really help improve health in the United States. And part of that is a MPH and DRPH fellowship program where people working in five areas related to health in the U.S. So it's addiction and overdose, environmental challenges, risks to adolescent health, violence, and then obesity in the food system. People who are working in those areas but without formal public health training can come and get a fully funded either MPH or DRPH degree at Hopkins and then go back and continue working with their organization but with some learning from 
a public health perspective. And the programs can be online and part-time. So it's a really exciting initiative and I think will be a really nice way to spread learning across the country. And I'm excited about it in part to then think about sort of from my perspective of teaching causal inference and these sorts of designs, kind of how can we teach the fellows that? But it's a really cool initiative that I think has the potential to make a real impact in the coming years. Liz Stewart, thank you for being on the podcast at DC. and look forward to your future work. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producers are Carissa Minnick and Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.